New ideas and new technology are causing seismic shifts in the media industry. Where are we headed? What does it mean? Keep listening. Media strategist Gabriella Mirabelli talks with the brightest minds in entertainment and business. Meet the innovators, the risk takers, and the disruptors on the front lines of change from Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and beyond. The future is coming to a screen near you. Are you ready? This is the Up Next podcast with Gabriella Mirabelli. Welcome to Up Next. I'm your host, Gabriella Mirabelli. My guest today is Todd Rogers. He is professor of public policy at Harvard University, where he has won teaching awards for the past seven consecutive years. He is a behavioral scientist and co-founder of the Analyst Institute and Everyday Labs. Today, we'll be talking about how to effectively write when communicating with busy people. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Can you share about your background as a behavioral scientist who works in public policy and how that led you to work in the field of effective communication and writing? It seems like a a bit of a leap. I started as a political pollster and realized there was a science of behavior change that wasn't being used in politics. So I went to grad school to get my PhD in this interdisciplinary program between psychology, economics, political science, organizational behavior. I think of it as the science of behavior change. Afterwards, I left academia and started a research institute in Washington called the Analyst Institute, where it's the hub of data science and behavioral science for the left. And so we ran hundreds of experiments looking at how do we communicate with busy voters for persuasion, volunteer recruitment, get out the vote, fundraising. And you can see that starts pointing in this direction. And I decided I didn't want to be a, a pollster anymore. So I went to academia and shifted entirely to how do we mobilize families and support families to help kids succeed outside of school. And in the process, started an organization that works on reducing chronic absenteeism using the best evidence we have for large urban school districts. It now sends millions of communications every year to busy families trying to motivate, mobilize, and empower them to reduce absenteeism. So now we've got voted, busy voters, busy parents. Across all these domains, we're communicating with busy people. There are a handful of principles. So busy voters, busy parents, busy constituents, busy employees, busy family members, busy friends, busy bosses. Everybody we're communicating with, it turns out, is busy. And that means they're skimming. And it turns out there's an opportunity for us to be more effective. So- In your website, writingforbusyreaders.com, the focus is the art of concise and impactful communication. Why is concise linked with impactful? Is it just because we're, is it just because we're busy? That's it. I, are you, are you just trying to say that it took me too long to answer that first question? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) I realized that as I was answering, I'm like, wow, I started 20 years ago in this story. I did not need to start that story. (laughs) So it was so long. One of the principles is less is more. Okay. And and the idea with that is that everyone is busy and everyone is skimming. And so one of the strategies for being more effective is to reduce the, what we are asking people to read, the cognitive burden of it across a lot of randomized control trials. And we should probably establish that's how that's like been the big revelation and, and joy for me in talking with people about this work is some people's eyes light up and they're like, oh my God, I have been fighting about this way of writing in my organization forever. And they always dismiss it as it's really a question of style and preference and taste. And our randomized experiments 
dozens of them and borrowing from lots of fields show that, well, it's not really just taste. It's actually like some are just more effective for getting through to busy people. So doing communication right, your book and your website highlights six guiding principles for writing for busy people. I'm going to use those for the backbone of our conversation as we go forward first, and you've touched on this, less is more. And when you're talking about this, do you simply mean fewer words or do you also mean fewer topics? Both. So Strunk and White wrote this book, Elements of Style which is often referred to as the Bible for clear writing. And they said, omit needless words. Sure, that's costless. Cut words that you can cut without losing any meaning. Mm -hmm. Yes, do that, please. The second is, which is a little bit more radical, is say fewer ideas. The more, the more you add, we've seen in a bunch of these experiments, the more, the more you add, the more ideas, the more words, the less likely someone is to read and respond. So here's and, a question, though. You're talking about these busy school districts. I know my school district sends like a little Oxford English dictionary home all the time. It's just ugh, too much. But they have a lot to say. So would it be better if they did each idea as a separate email, which then I get 10 emails or one email with 10 ideas. Are you saying that actually 10 separate emails is more effective? So we talk about less is more. What we're really talking about is trade-offs at okay. all at every level. There are trade-offs. So okay. the school does not send you their legal waiver every time they communicate with you. They And they are deciding some details are there to keep and some details to exclude in the message. What we are driving home is that with the more details you add, the less likely it is anyone reads it. And okay. when, and, and there's no optimal answer. You just, you have your priorities, but you just have to know there's trade-offs. We did a study on this and it turns out 70 plus percent of people prefer it all in one message. Whereas 30% prefer them in separate. There isn't a right answer. Okay. <laughs> like it just That just means it's heterogeneous. When when you're an organization communicating with, to many people, you either have to make a decision or you should ask people in advance when they sign up how they want to be communicated with. But when you're communicating with individuals, this is one of the meta topics that we have come as we've started talking about this work more. We should just be having discussions with people about how they want to be communicated with. Yes, that is so very true. I agree and, wholeheartedly. And, it, and it's it's really varied. That said, there is one thing that's not that varied. Everyone is busy and everyone's goal when they read our practical writing is to move on as quickly as possible. That That's right. a consistency. Speaking of that, the next principle is make reading easy. And you suggest a fifth grade reading level. Why is that? If you're speaking all with college educated people, why still use a fifth grade level? So I, I actually don't know that we recommend a fifth grade reading level. We just say that 20% of U.S. adults read at a fifth grade reading level, 50% read at a ninth grade reading level or below, which means that half of U.S. adults struggle to read something written at a college reading level. There are a few reasons that we say write so that it is easy to read. And what easy to read means, short words, short sentences, familiar words, grammatically simple. Not hard to think of examples of terribly complex, but grammatically correct sentences. The reason writing so it's easy to read is desirable and useful. One, it's accessible to more people. We are specifically excluding a very large fraction of people when we write in a way that is at a higher reading level than they're comfortable with. Two, even those, like you said, if you're writing to a college educated person, why not write complex SAT vocabulary? It's cognitively taxing to read complicated writing. And what that means is it is both taxing and we are more likely to postpone doing it. Right. 
but it's both deterring of people who can read it and inaccessible to people who can't. If you've got a boss who sprinkles in buzzwords into almost every communication, so you're receiving this from your leadership, <laughs> they're saying the flywheel and synergistic, and you're thinking it's like word salad, put it in the spinner and see what happens. It doesn't necessarily make sense, but should you resist the urge to mirror this back to them? And is there value to parroting back? We understand in human interaction face-to-face, -face, you you imitate people in that builds rapport. Is there a rapport building with copying people's writing styles? Sure. There, it's going to be dissatisfying for you, but across many of these topics, the immediate <laughs> answer is going to be, well, it depends on the context and the norms and the expectations. Okay. But the secondary answer after that is the basic fact that Simple. the real challenge we have is how do we get people to read what we're saying and respond if we're asking them to respond. So with regards to a boss who uses flywheeling synergistic vocabulary, flywheeling synergistic vocabulary, then you, you need to start all writing starts with being clear on your own goal. And one of the challenges that I think people initially, as they think about this new approach to writing is they're like, well, writing also helps me clarify my own thinking. And it's exactly right. Writing does at least two things. It helps you clarify your thinking. And then it also creates something that you are trying to send an idea, a vehicle through which you can send an idea to someone else's mind. Those are different functions. Right. And right. if your goal is to clarify your thinking, do that with writing, but then that's not your message. But when you have a goal in communicating, you just need to be clear on it. Sometimes the goal is to be liked or to seem sophisticated. Fine. Right. Great. But often the goal is to communicate something. When we talk about the goals of our writing, being clear in your goals just helps to clarify instantly what's in and what's out. And we ran an experiment with a large school district where they were trying to get families to fill out a survey. And it was they were texting families. And in one condition, they had a sentence or two of Thanks for sticking with us. We know it's been hard. We're, we're trying to get better and serve you and your kids better. Please fill out the survey. In the other condition, it said, please fill out the survey. And the please fill out the survey did better when we were texting families as a randomized experiment. But the school district decided to keep the less effective one, the one that had all the extra sentences about how thanks for sticking with us. We're going to try it better to serve your kids and you. And that was because in the process of doing this research, they discovered that actually their goal, the, the higher priority goal was rebuilding and repairing mm -hmm. relationships with families, not getting right. people to fill out their survey. And so in the process, we shouldn't have done the experiment because they didn't care what the answer was. But interesting. They, they thought the goal was narrowly to fill out these surveys, but then it became clear that, well, actually we have a higher goal. And so being clear on your goal helps to guide everything. Well, somewhat, and, somewhat related than a lot of academic papers, which relate to business fields like marketing, for example, seem to write to obfuscate, not illuminate. Why does academia not follow these rules? Uh, <laughs> I can say that the American Marketing Association, which is a field that I am adjacent to and have published in their journals, they have explicitly said that they want plain language in their paper, in their journals. Additionally, there has been research showing that language, that papers written in more simple language are more likely to be cited, which is great. That said, I think that there are lots of other reasons that okay. that academic writing is not easily penetrated, some of which is probably because it is trying to create this, God, I'm about to be flywheel synergistic, but like ex to be exclusionary. 
if it's mm-hmm. too accessible, it, then anybody can be it. It doesn't make it special. Yeah, I think so. I, I have a colleague who was told by a journal that the edits that this person needed to make was not on the ideas, but on making it seem more formal and sophisticated in its language. Mm-hmm. Like that is egregious. It's like, let's make this harder for people to read. Then it will look like the kind of thing that we publish. Right. The next principle you have is design for easy navigation. What does that mean? My favorite thing that I learned in doing this book was this eye tracking research that will lock people's heads in and they'll they'll put these lasers tracking where their eyes are moving as they look over some text. And there are a couple of things that really pop out of this. The first is people have three different types of, of reading. One is what they call scanning, which is just jumping around orienting which should be familiar when you're like darting around, like how do I make sense of what's here so I can get what I want and move on? The second is skimming, which is trying to make sense sentence by sentence, but jumping over words. And the third is the way we are taught to read and write, which is close reading, which is reading word, 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 word. But most of the time people are skimming and then they'll dive in and read close when they're really interested and they'll pull out and scan when they need to orient and find something or they're thinking about moving on. And so we want to write so that it is easy for people to jump in and jump out because they're going to do that anyway. And very often they just give up on us and move on before they figured out what we're trying to say. The default behavior for readers is to just quit and move on. And so designing for navigation is about like thinking of our writing as if it is a visual object that people are going to jump around and you want to make it easy for them to jump around so they can find what they want. And it helps us achieve our goal of getting through the key information to them. Is there any risk that if you badly format your visual, that it can actually hurt your message? Yes, 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 yes. There's If you do everything, you can do everything badly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so we'll talk about formatting in a little bit. You can do that horribly. But but yes, there, there's risk that you can format badly. But here, let me tell you an example. I was working with an organization that has 50,000 j- practicing journalists as their members. And they send a weekly, it's called Journalist Resource. And they send a weekly update to their members, which is a six paragraph like uh, newsletter about summarizing scholarship on a single topic in the news today, just to make it easier for journalists to use academic scholarship by making it more accessible. And Six paragraphs is a lot. And we ran an experiment where in one condition, it was six continuous paragraphs. In the other, every two paragraphs, we added a heading, just a three word summary of what's the next two paragraphs about. And what we found was that adding the headings more than doubled the likelihood that anyone was going to use anything after the first two paragraphs. Fascinating. Which is right. Like, but it also makes total sense. I mean, (laughs) I just think about, yes, of course. Right. And so the, the idea is just make it easy so they can, so that because, it would be great if they read every, if a reader read everything you wrote. They're not going to. So we need to write to accommodate the way they actually read. On our website, we actually made a artificial intelligence tool where we train GPT-4 on specifically the principles and emails where pre-examples and then edited post-examples. So it's gotten really good at applying these principles to show how you would rewrite an email to make it easier for someone to skim. And I would love it if people wanted to use it. It's free. It's it's available. It's at 
writingforbusyreaders.com backslash AI. It's, a, it's on the on the website. Fantastic. The next principle is use enough formatting, but no more. What's the difference then between design for easy navigation and enough formatting, but no more? What is the new so de- difference? Sure. Yeah. So design for navigation is really adding structure so it's easy to navigate. Okay. And using formatting is, let's think about bold, underline, and highlight. People interpret bold, underline, and highlight as the writer saying, this is the most important content. And so what what that leads to is one, they jump to that immediately and they read that first very often. And two, and this, this is really not initially obvious, it licenses them to move on without having read anything else. Oh, you could be really sneaky if you did that. Uh, sure, but, it all, but I, I, I'm we're gonna we're gonna focus on the I'm more sorry. virtuous. Even. <laughs> but 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 yes. It, it, so what we have found is that if you bold underline or highlight one sentence, it actually decreases the likelihood they read the neighboring sentences or anything around it. Right, oh. and so it's very potent for drawing attention to the key information. And it's really hard for people to figure out what they think the most important information is. That leads to all sorts of downstream problems. But mm-hmm. as soon as, assuming you know what you're trying to say, you can use formatting to reinforce it. It can pretty dramatically increase the likelihood that they that the reader gets what this is about. The next principle is emphasize why they should care. And you emphasize the importance of understanding your audience because everyone is busy. But what if you have an audience which is diverse? You're communicating to executives and colleagues. Does it change how you approach it? So let's start with assuming it's a relatively homogeneous audience. And my favorite example is we're Rock the Vote. Rock the Vote ran an experiment where, for those of you unfamiliar, Rock the Vote, you registers young people to vote at fairs and festivals and concerts. And they were recruiting volunteers to be at these events to register young people. And in one message, they titled it register young people to vote, which is what they cared about. In the other condition, they titled it go to concerts for free and register voters. And then what they found was that when they used the one that actually the the reader would care about without changing. I, this is the important element to us on this is the content's the same, but you can just raise up the dimension that the reader would care about as opposed to what we are focused on. Our purpose doesn't have to be their motive. And so they they actually led to four, a four X increase in the number of volunteers when they shift to, I mean, because everybody's turned off by not everybody, but it's not as motivating to say register young people to vote. That's great. Way more so motivating to go to concerts for free. I mean, that's easy. You don't need, you don't need to be a behavioral scientist to know that people would rather go to Beyonce concert than, than sit outside a grocery store and register voters. And yeah. so saying you can do both, you can register voters while at a Beyonce concert in. Yeah. Sign me up. Here you go. So would you say that there are differences when your information sharing versus action required in terms of emphasizing why they should care or does it matter? So let's be specific. If, if I am asking you to respond, I'm propo- I, I am proposing on pricing for something for a sales. I, I'm in sales and I'm proposing a certain pricing scheme for a product we're selling. And I'm asking for you to approve because you're my manager that this is the price I'm going to offer as opposed to me telling you that I met with this client. 
Yeah, right, I, I'm thinking there are different types of situations where you're reporting up to your manager and sometimes you're just saying, this is what I'm doing. It's worth paying me. I see how busy I am. Boom, boom, boom. Versus this is what I'm doing and I need your approval on this budget. Yeah, I, I it, it, let's think about what your goal with those messages are. And then we write around your goals. So in the first one, your goal is disclosure and FYI. Then you make it really clear. This is FYI. It is kinder to your reader to make it really clear that no action required, just updating you. Okay. And the other condition, you, you badly need the person to know that an action is required because you will fail to achieve your goal if it is not clear to the reader that that, right. that an action is required. And so it starts with knowing what your goal is. And then how do we make it as easy as possible for the reader to accomplish my goal? Right. And that's that goes to the, the final principle, which is make responding easy. So is that by how do you make what is a, a great way to make responding easy? Reduce all friction. Make it as as it requires little time, effort and attention as possible. A completely basic but all too common example is we're trying to schedule a meeting and there's a bunch of us on the chain and I throw out seven times. You respond saying I can do the first and last that Todd offered. The third person needs to respond. They now need to go back to my original list and figure out what the first and third were and then see if they can do that. If you really want to make it easy in your response, you could have said, I can do these two times of Todd's and then list the actual times to reduce the the amount of effort required by the next person to do it. There's all sorts of, I mean, that's a really trivial one. Right. No, that's a great example though of, of how to make it easy when you have a series of daisy chained questions, which one question will trigger another. Is it that just you do the one question and wait for the response before you put in the next? I I told you, you'd be frustrated. It depends. The, the mantra is if it's important for us, we want to make it easy for them. And so if it's important for us as the writers, we want to make it as easy as possible. If it is a sequence of questions that are contingent on each other, whatever's the easiest pathway. And if I were to send you a message saying, what do you think of this? And my real question is, do you approve or not? Then I should make it really- You set it up as a yes, no versus- Exactly. you think, okay. Yeah, because you'll be more likely to respond. That's like, that's the important part. Not only is it easier for you to respond, you will just be more likely to, because then what do you think? I, as soon as this, this discussion ends, I am going to my inbox and I'm going to deal with all the ones I've postponed where I'm like, oh, how is that going to take me five minutes, 10 minutes to respond to? Whereas do you approve this or not? If it's yes, it's a quick one. If it's no, then maybe it requires more discussion and thought. Right. Well, we've been talking about writing. Do these same principles hold for business meetings? Lots of meetings out there. There, there are. We, we, we have a ton of evidence on writing and there is there are these really important distinctions between writing and speaking. One of which is the most common act for the most common response to write to reading other people's writing is to not read it. And so the most common form of engagement is skipping. Whereas in person, I have you as a captive audience for whatever time we have, you can of course like mind wander and that resembles skipping our conversation. But there is some minimum amount of attention that you need to devote to our interaction. So I do have your attention uh, to some extent. Whereas with reading, you don't even have that. 
I, I almost want to push back because one of the things I find in consulting is that one of the biggest problems is one of the most fundamentals of failure to actually listen to each other in meetings, in communicating with people. So you are physically there. It, it would be a lot harder and ruder to not pay attention. But people are very rude and tricky. Uh, for, uh, for sure. I'm just saying we our evidence is un, un, right. unambiguous about writing. It's got to be the case. And it is definitely anecdotally for me when someone takes 10 minutes to answer a question, I can't really remember their answer. If, whereas if they say it concisely, it's much easier to be for me to understand what they said. And I'm sure a lot of the other principles play out that way too. But there is an interesting like tension with it, with attention. And mm. I think stage zero of any written communication is, do you deliver the core message before they move on? Whereas in person, they can't as easily move on, though they can counter argue and disagree. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. One thing before we go, headlines. There are a lot of companies out there that say, we can craft your subject line so that your readers will click on your email to get it. Now, attention grabbing subject lines, are there guidelines from behavioral science or is it really about novelty of approach? And so it's always changing because what is novel is always subject to change because the more people do it, the less novel it is, blah, blah, blah. A few answers. One, we have a project with the Washington Post and Upworthy, which is another news source where we have studied something like 21,000 different A-B tests on headlines of news stories. This wouldn't surprise you in the context of writing for busy readers, that the simpler the writing, the more common the word, the shorter the word, the simpler the grammar, the more likely some uh, a headline is to be clicked on within an A-B test, holding the content constant. That's one that you're talking about subject lines. Mm -hmm. Now in the book, we're focused on the, the universals, which is if everyone is busy and skimming, how should writers write to accommodate the way readers read? And there are some things that are going to be context specific. So in 2008, Barack Obama and his campaign pioneered the small dollar donation from online fundraising. You may remember the most successful subject line of the entire campaign. Do you, do you know what it this was? Hey, was Oh my God. You're <laughs> nice. Exactly. Now, we're so rare that anyone knows that. I'm I'm super impressed. Yes, it was hey, all lowercase, H-E-Y. Now, that succeeded presumably because the only people who sent those messages were people you were familiar with. And so it, was, it basically tricked people into opening it. Right. Eventually, the norm for campaign fundraising shifted to these informal messages. And it no longer stood out because people now knew what, what the game was. Now, right. I like that as an example because there is no stable equilibrium when you're trying to capture people's attention. It depends on what people expect and what the norms are and what the rest of their inbox or the rest of their like port array of options looks like. So that's one is that there isn't a single dominating, stable, dominating headline. It's going to evolve over time, depending on what the norms and what the rest of the inbox looks like. That said, I'm going to make an appeal that... Our headlines should say, our subject lines should say what our messages contain. And it is kinder to our readers and more effective when we are writing practically to just make it completely unambiguous as efficiently as possible so that if it's not relevant to the reader, they can move on. And if it is, they know exactly what it is. 
if, if there's a different game in email marketing where you're trying to trick people into paying attention, that's fine. That's not really what we're writing about. We're writing about when you're, when you're trying to communicate something to a busy person and they're in a world where they're trying to move on as quickly as possible. Right. Right. So interesting. Is there anything that we've missed? Any last, I can't leave the conversation without telling you this one more thing. Is there anything else that we should keep in mind? Sure. There, here is, I, I think the, the most radical aspect of our approach, which is often when we write, we think we need to be clear, maybe even beautifully written and complete. And then it's on the reader to get everything. Once we are complete and clear, it's up to the reader to make sure that they pull the key information out. I want to shift it to, I think it is always our fault as writers if the reader gives up on our writing before they have pulled out the key information. Even if it is perfectly clear, even if it is totally complete, it's always on the writer and never on the reader. Because here's the reality. We all, I, I am now declaring with you, everyone, <laughs> is, everyone is skimming what we are reading. So now you can't pretend you don't know that. Right. Given that reality, it's on us to make sure the key information gets through before they give up on us. And if they give up on us, you can't fall back on. But it was in the thing I sent. That's on you. No, it's always on the writer because the reality is the reader is always busy and skimming. And so the most radical take is shifting responsibility. It is not about being complete and clear. It's about writing so that it is likely that a busy person is going to get the key information before they do the inevitable, which is quit on whatever you sent them. The burden of simplification is on the person who's doing the communicating. It is them. They need to make it simple for the other person. Yeah. Can I can I end with an appeal? Sure. The appeal is I want everyone when they write anything to add a round of edit where they ask themselves, how do I make it easier for the reader? That's it. When like we're, that. we think we're done before now look at it and step back and say, how do I make this easier for the reader? It turns out that's more effective. It's also kinder. Really great. Great, great, great. I love it. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Gabrielle. This has been fun. Thanks for inviting me. We've reached the end of another episode of Up Next. I'd like to close by thanking my production team at Up Next, my friend, Rob Naughton, the voice artist who recorded our open. And of course, all of you, the members of our audience, thank you. I'll be talking to you again next time right here on Up Next. <laughs>